0: Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you so much that because of the cross, we can be forgiven. Because of your sacrifice, and because of your death, we can live. Lord, we thank you so much for that glorious reality and how you came to save us from our sins. Lord, tonight, as we study your word, we pray that you would help us to understand that more deeply. We ask that your Holy Spirit would just fill this room, that you give us special wisdom and understanding and knowledge. Lord, we just want to know what your will is. We want to understand, and more than that, we want to experience it in our lives. So Father, I I pray that as we open your word, that you would open our hearts and minds to receive the message. Give us a humble and teachable spirit, and we pray, Lord, that as we discover truth, that truth will make us free. Please, Lord, give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech, and give each one of us ears to hear what the Spirit has to say to us tonight. This is our prayer, in Jesus' name, amen. Our message tonight is one that is very relevant. We're dealing with God's answer for global peace. It's so relevant because as we consider our world, we definitely live in a world that needs peace. There's a lack of peace in our planet. We live in a world that is being torn apart by war and conflict, international conflict, and also domestic conflict, families being torn apart, relationships and marriages and countries, and it's just not good, friends. We live in a world that does not know peace. and Yet man tries to make plans for peace over and over again, but it does not last. And as we consider the craziness of our world, why is it that our world is so fragile and our plans for peace so futile? And the reason is simple, friends. It's because mankind is trying to live in peace without the Prince of Peace. The Bible tells us in Second Chronicles 15 verse 3 through 6, describing Israel of old, and it tells us for a long time Israel had been without the true God, without a teaching priest, and without what? Without what? Without law. And in those times, notice what happens as a result, and in those times there was no peace. But great turmoil was on all the inhabitants of the land, so nation was destroyed by nation and city by city, for God troubled them with every adversity. Describing Israel of old, living without God and without the teachings of God and without the laws of God, it tells us that they had no peace, only turmoil and destruction and adversity. And Friends, what happened back then with Israel is the description of our world today. For without God, the teachings of God, and the laws of God, it is impossible for mankind to experience peace. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 20 and 21, the Bible says, But the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is, no what, peace, says my God, for the wicked. The Bible tells us that the wicked, those who are trying to live life On their own and for themselves, it says that they're like the troubled seed. They don't have any rest, and they don't have any peace. And that's the reason why our world lacks peace, is because it's filled with wickedness. And friends, I want you to consider that this word wickedness literally means lawlessness. What does it mean? For when we live lawless lives, there can never be any peace. And, friends, that's the reason why the Lord Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He's the only one that can give us peace. Notice in Isaiah 9, verse 6 and 7, as we lay the foundation for our study tonight, talking about the Lord Jesus, it says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called, what is the name? Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace peace of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. No end to the peace of the Prince of Peace. And friends, the reason why there's not going to be any end to the peace that Jesus offers is because the government is on his shoulders. Here we find, friends, that this prince has a government, and a government, his kingdom is governed by laws that bring peace. You see, friends, a kingdom has a government and every government has laws by which that government is, is, is run by. Unjust laws or unfair laws brings about anarchy and sedition and rebellion. But just and fair laws brings about order, harmony, and peace. And God's government is a government of peace. Why? Because it is governed by a just and fair and eternal law. But Satan does not want peace, he wants war. And so Satan right now is making attack against God's kingdom, God's government, by simply attacking the foundation of his government, which is his holy law. And friends, I want you to notice this is exactly what prophecy predicts Satan would do, especially in the last days. It describes the Antichrist's power in Daniel 7 verse 25. We're going to find out who that is on Saturday evening. But notice one of the identifying characteristics of the Antichrist kingdom. It says that they would think to change what? Times and laws. One of Satan's goals through his Antichrist kingdom is to seek to change the times and the laws of God. You see, friends, Satan's Antichrist kingdom is a kingdom of antinomianism. Can you say that word? That's just a fancy word that simply means without law. In other words, his kingdom, Satan's kingdom, is a lawless kingdom. It is the spirit of antinomianism that basically rules the world today. God's law has been replaced with the law of humanism. Satan also tries to destroy God's law by postmodernism and materialism and secularism. He's seeking to uh, introduce a counterfeit law. calling us to believe that we can be a law unto ourselves. Now, this is tragic in the world, but it's far more tragic when we see this same spirit of antinomianism creeping within the church of God, where many churches have the spirit of antinomianism. And this is what prophecy says would happen. I want you to notice we studied this a little bit before. We're going to unpack it on Saturday. But notice the characteristic of the Antichrist. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3 and 4, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first, and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. This is the Antichrist, friends. He's called the man of sin. The man of what? And friends, sin is the breaking of the law. In fact, another version says he is the lawless one. You see, the very title of Antichrist is that he is the the lawless one, the man of sin, the son of perdition. And notice what he's going to do. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship, so that he as God sits in the where? The temple of God showing himself that he is God one of the identifying characteristics of the Antichrist is that he would sit in the temple of God bringing him bringing into God's temple his spirit of antinomianism his lawless spirit and friends do you remember friends what the temple of God is as we studied this past Monday, the temple of God, according to New Testament theology, is not a literal building that's going to be rebuilt in Jerusalem. We studied very clearly that the temple of God is simply the New Testament church. It's God's people. So when it describes the Antichrist sitting in the temple of God, it simply means that he's going to creep within many Christian churches, bringing in his spirit of antinomianism, the teaching that we do not no longer need the law of God humanism and antinomianism is scary in the world, but it's far more scary when we see this same spirit creeping within Christianity today. And by the way, friends, not only Paul warned us that this would happen, but Jesus himself tells us that this is what Satan would do. Notice what the Bible says, please write it down, in Matthew chapter 7 verse 21 through 23, Jesus is prophesying concerning the, the, the characteristics of religious people in the last days. And notice what he said, not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Stop right there. What kind of people call Jesus Lord? What kind of people? Christian people, isn't that right? Religious people, so this is not talking about atheists or secularists. this is talking about the church. Not everyone that says to me, "Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven." But he that does what? The will of my Father which is in heaven." Many will say to me in that day, "Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Here Jesus is describing a bunch of religious people, people who claim to believe in Him as Lord, and yet they're not doing God's will. They have His name on their lips, but they're not doing His will in their hearts. They have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. And friends, I want to submit to us tonight that this is exactly what Satan has done. He's brought in his spirit of antinomianism within the Christian community today in a general sense and in many individuals lives specifically and that's the reason why rappers can get up on national television after rapping about sex and lust and violence and pride and they can win an award for rapping about all of that foolishness and they win this award and the first words out of their mouth they say I want to thank Jesus for winning this award when Jesus has absolutely nothing to do with what they're doing. They have His name on their lips but they're not doing His will in their hearts. (laughs) Friends, I want to submit to us tonight that professors of Christ ought to demonstrate their profession by being possessors of Christ. It's not enough for us to be a professor, we have to be a possessor of Jesus. Amen? We have to do His will in our hearts. I want to submit that the greatest enemy to the cause of Christ is not the atheist that says there's no God. The greatest enemy to the cause of Christ is not the open sinner that lives as if there's no God. The greatest enemy to the cause of Christ is the quote-unquote Christian who with his mouth says, yes, there is a God, but with his life lives as if there's no God because that individual misrepresents the holy name by which they have been called and they misrepresent that name to the whole world. And to these individuals will come the dreadful words from Jesus. He will say to these professors, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice what? Lawlessness. Another translation says iniquity. It's the same thing. Sin is lawlessness. So here we find professors who practice lawlessness. It is the spirit of Antichrist, the man of sin, sitting in the temple of God, creeping within Christianity and trying to get into our hearts. And Jesus will say to these people, I never knew you. And friends, those are the most dreadful words that will ever fall on human ears. These individuals, they thought that they were going to be saved. And they are surprised at their loss. They're questioning the judgment of God. Lord, Lord, haven't I done this and that and the other in your name? How can I be lost? Oh, friends, what a tragedy to think we're all right when we're all wrong. The greatest deception is self-deception. Thinking we're okay. Confident in our own commitments like Peter was when he said to Jesus, Lord, everyone else is going to leave you, but not me. I got your back. I'm going to die with you tonight. And Before the night was finished, what did Peter do? Denied him. You see, we don't even know our own hearts, friends. That's why we need to search and take inventory of our lives tonight. They were practicing lawlessness. So we find clearly, friends, that it's not enough to profess His name. We have to do God's will. Can you say amen? The Bible says don't just be hearers of the word, but be doers also of the word. And it says specifically that we must do the will of my Father in order to enter into the kingdom. And, and so friends, do you think it's important to do God's will, yes or no? How important do you suppose that is? It's a matter of eternity. And if it's that important, then we ought to know exactly what is the will of God. And I'm thankful that we don't have to guess because the Bible interprets itself. Notice how the Bible defines the will of God in Psalms 40 and verse 8. Please write it down. And by the way, you're getting a lot of scriptures tonight, uh, at least 30 or 40 of them, because we want to have a very thorough understanding of this topic. It's foundational for other nights. But notice in Psalms 40 verse 8, the Bible says, I delight. Now that word delight, is that positive or negative? That's a good word. That's a positive word. That means you enjoy it. That means it's not a problem. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy what? Law is where? Within my heart. Friends, this verse defines to us what God's will is. It's simply to have God's law in our hearts. This is Hebrew poetry. The book of Psalms is poetry. And in Hebrew poetry, instead of rhyming words like we do in English, roses are red, violets are blue, you see, in English, we, we rhyme words, but in Hebrew poetry, they instead of rhyming words, they rhyme ideas. This is called Hebrew parallelism. In other words, the first part of the verse and the second part of the verse are synonymous. That's the nature of Hebrew poetry. So in other words, to delight to do God's will is the same thing as having God's law written in our hearts. And that makes logical, congruent sense. You know why? Because those who are saying, Lord, Lord, but not doing God's will, what did Jesus say to them? Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, if they weren't doing his will, but rather practicing lawlessness... That shows that doing His will means that we are keeping the law in our hearts. And this is the very nature of the new covenant promise where God says, I want to write my law in your hearts and in your minds. He wants to take it from the tables of stone and write it on the fleshly tables of our hearts. And when it's in our heart, we will delight to do His will. It's not just going to be a duty, but it will be our delight because we love the Lord Jesus. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? But friends, it's shocking that some of the very ones claiming Jesus as Lord are watering down God's law and its importance. Or worse, there are actually some preachers and ministers preaching that God's law has been done away with. Have you heard that before? They're saying that grace is a license to break the law of God. You see, even many Christians, not just those in the world, but even many Christians are condemning the very law that would bring peace. This is the spirit of the Antichrist kingdom creeping within the temple of God, the church of today. And for this reason, God is sending an end-time message in the book of Revelation calling His people and the whole world back to His Holy law. I want you to notice in Revelation 14 verse 6 and 7. Please write it down. Notice with me on the screen. We we read this on previous nights. This is the final gospel message given to the whole world just before the Lord comes. And notice what it says. Revelation 14 verse 6 and 7. It says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting, what is that next word? Gospel. Now tell me, what does the word gospel mean? It literally means good news it's not bad news it's not legalistic news it's good news and by the way it's called the everlasting gospel it's the same one from the very beginning of time it's it's the eternal gospel so this angel this messenger has the gospel to preach to the world notice to preach unto them to, that dwell on the earth to how many nations Every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So notice, friends, this message that we're going to discover right now, whatever this everlasting gospel is, is not for one race. It's for the entire human race. It's not just for the Jews. It's for every human being on earth. It goes to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. It is the gospel of Christ. Now, what is this gospel specifically? Verse 7 tells us, saying with a loud voice, what is the first thing the angel says? Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. Friends, notice very carefully that a part of the final everlasting gospel message that's given to the whole world is a call for people to fear God. And friends, those two words, fear God, that's Revelation's answer for global peace. When we can understand what it really means to fear God, we will know God's plan for global and inward peace in our lives. So the next question is this, What does it mean to fear God? It doesn't mean to be afraid of God, friends. That's not what it means. To fear God means to respect God or to reverence the ways of God, just like children ought to respect their parents, not be afraid of them, but to respect them, to revere them. That's what it means. And as we compare this scripture with other scriptures, we can find out more specifically what it means to respect and reverence God. I want you to notice as we compare this with Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13. We find that the Bible interprets itself. Please write it down. Ecclesiastes 12:13 tells us, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His what? Commandments, for this is the whole duty of the Jews. Is that what it says? It's the whole duty of what? man. And and, and ladies, that's not just talking about the males. It's talking about females too. It's, It's talking about mankind. It's the whole duty of man, the whole duty of mankind. So to fear God look means to keep God's commandments. And friends, I want you to notice when we fear God and keep His commandments, that's a part of the gospel, friends, the everlasting gospel calls us to fear God. In other words, obedience to God's commandments is a part of the everlasting gospel. Friends, that's important because many people, many Christians think that the gospel is one thing and the law of God is something that is totally separate and different. But no, friends, it's it's a part of the gospel. It's a part of the good news. And here's the reason why it's good news, because I want us to now notice what happens as a result of obeying the law of God because we love Him. It brings peace, order, and harmony in our world. Notice what the Bible says in Proverbs 3, verse 1 and verse 2. It says, my son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments. Well, what happens when we keep God's commandments from our hearts, like the new covenant tells us? It says, for length of days, long life, and what? Peace shall they add to thee. So the Bible tells us that when we keep God's law from our heart, when we experience the reality of the new covenant, it says we will experience long life and we will have peace in that long life. Can you say amen? How many of you want long life of peace? Here's the answer. In fact, notice another one. Oh, I love this verse. Psalms 119 verse 165. Write it down. It says, great peace. What kind of peace? So not just peace, friends. But God wants to give us great peace. But who's going to get it? Great peace. Have they which love thy law, and nothing shall offend them. The Bible tells us that when we love God's law, when we have it in our heart, we're going to have great peace, and we're not, we're not going to be offended so easily. We're not going to be always stressed out and worried. In other words, if we're driving down Highway 99, just, just, you're just driving down there, and someone cuts us off rudely. If we have God's law in our hearts, and if we love that law, we're not going to respond to that person that cut us off with that uni- waving that universal sign. We're just going to smile and pray and praise the Lord. Can you say amen? amen. We're not going to be offended, friends, because we have God's law, which is a law of love written in our hearts. This is God's answer for peace and safety in our world. God's law is the divine blueprint, friends that tells us and teaches us how to live in peace both with God and man. It's Revelation's plan for global peace. Now, friends, something you'll notice that's very interesting, that in our world today, mankind has passed many laws to try to bring about peace and order and safety in society. In fact, it's been estimated that man has made over 35 million laws to try to control human behavior. But in contrast to that, God has given just 10 simple commandments. Can you say amen? And by the way, those 35 million laws, most of them are probably right here in California. Isn't that right? (laughs) We have so many laws in this state. It's the land of red tape. So many laws here. But God has given us just 10 commandments. And unlike many of the unwise and defective laws that man makes, the Bible tells us that God's law is a perfect law. And the reason why is because the Ten Commandments controls or governs all human behavior at the heart level, which is where it matters the most. I want you to notice what the Bible tells us concerning God's law. In Psalms 19 verse 7, it tells us that the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. In Romans 7 12, it tells us that the law is holy and just, meaning it's fair and it's good. James 2:12 it tells us that the law is the law of what? Liberty. And what is another word for liberty, friends? Freedom. And, and that's important to know because many people think that the Ten Commandments are a bunch of legalistic bondage. But the New Testament tells us it's a law of liberty. It's a law of freedom. When you look at the Ten Commandments, they are perfect, holy, just, good, and it's a law of freedom. Now, what exactly is this law? And why is it so perfect and important for the welfare of humanity? Well, friends, before God wrote His law on tables of stone, He spoke it to Moses on Mount Sinai. And for the sake of time, we're just going to review very quickly the Ten Commandments. You can find it in Exodus chapter 20. You can write that down. I encourage you to read the whole chapter when you get home tonight. But notice the first commandment God spoke and He said this, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Now tell me, is there anything wrong with this commandment, yes or no? Is this reasonable? Of course. Why? Because God is the Creator he's the one that gave us life and therefore as our creator and life giver he tells us don't have any other gods before him in other words we need to put God first in our lives can you say amen? amen nothing wrong with that one the second commandment thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them God does not want us to worship idols and statues and and pictures and whatnot because there's nothing on earth that can fully represent who God is in other words God is wanting us to put him first and not have to uh, f- uh, worship false gods. Now listen friends, we may not bow down and worship idols of stone and wood and gold and metal, but you know we we in America have different types of idols. You see whatever you put first in your life is your god. It could be a car, it could be a job, it could be a relationship. Whatever is number one priority for you, that's your God. And God is saying, don't put anything else before me. We may not have idols of stone and wood and metal, but we have other kinds of idols here. We have American idols, isn't that right? We make idols out of individuals, movie stars and sports stars and music stars. But God is saying, put me first in your life. And friends, is God worthy of the number one place in our life? Yes or no? And the reason why he is worthy of number one, because he put us first number one in his life. Amen. And so he deserves first place in our hearts as well. Commandment three, God says, thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. God does not want us to use his holy name carelessly with curse words and whatnot, but you may not use God's name in vain and say it with a curse word, but one of the greatest ways many religious people take God's name in vain is when they call themselves Christians. They're taking God's name upon themselves, calling themselves Christians, and yet they're not living the life of Christ. They take His name, but it's in vain because that they're not living the life. You see, friends, the law governs more than just the outward actions or words. It governs the way that we live. The fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy? Six days shall thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In this commandment, God is wanting to spend special quality time with us every single week. He does not want us to work seven days a week non-stop because he knows that if we do that, we'll work ourselves to death. And so it's amazing. In this commandment, God wants to spend time with you and me every single week. And friends, when you think about that, it's amazing. Who are you and who am I that the great God of the universe is not too big and not too busy to want to spend quality time with us? Can you say amen? There's nothing wrong with that commandment. Then the fifth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. Any parents want to get rid of this one? Oh, we need more of this one in our world, isn't that right? Then commandment six, thou shalt not kill. Jesus said if you hate or angry at your brother without a cause, you're already guilty of, of murdering him in your heart. You see, it's not just the outward act. It governs the motives and intentions of our heart. Commandment seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said if you look upon a woman to lust after her, you've already been guilty of committing adultery with her in your heart. Again, it's more than the outward act. It governs the heart, friends, the heart commandment number eight, thou shalt not steal. If everyone kept this commandment, there will be no such things as locks on our doors. You wouldn't need to carry around keys in your pocket anymore because you wouldn't have to worry about your property. Friends, think about it. If everyone kept this commandment, we would live in a wonderful society. Can you say amen? There'll be no theft, no robbery. If everyone kept this commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, there will be no divorce and broken homes and dysfunctional families and children grow up insecure thinking no one cares about them. It would be wonderful friends God has given these commandments they are wise they are perfect he's given it to us for our benefit commandment the next one it says thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor in other words God wants us to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth can he say amen? amen commandment number 10 thou shalt not covet the neighbor's house thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife in other words stop desiring that which does not belong to you and belongs to someone else be content with what God has given to you because the Bible says that godliness with contentment is great gain. So those are the Ten Commandments that God spoke on Mount Sinai. Ten principles of freedom, the law of liberty. God gave them to the human race, not to restrict us, but rather to protect us from the evil results of sin. They are ten principles of freedom. When God said, thou shalt not kill, was He trying to restrict us? Or was He trying to protect our lives? trying to protect our lives when God said thou shalt not commit adultery was he trying to just restrict us from fooling around no he was trying to protect the sacredness of marriage and the family every single you can go down the list friends all the commandments they're laws of liberty given for peace order and harmony God is protecting us from the evil results of sin and so he spoke it on Mount Sinai but then sometime after that God knowing how forgetful we are as human beings And not wanting to to trust frail human memory with the exact wording of his law, he then thought it necessary to write it down with his own finger on tablets of stone. Notice what it says in Exodus 31 and verse 18. Please write it down. The Bible tells us, And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of what? Stone, and it was written by who? It was written with the finger of God. Friends, I want you to consider something interesting that the only part of the Bible that God did not entrust man to write was the Ten Commandments. Every other part of the Bible, God inspired the prophets and they wrote. But when it came to the Ten Commandments, God said, no, I'm gonna write this one myself. So he wrote it with his own finger on tablets of stone. Why stone? Because you can't easily erase stone, isn't that right? What do people mean when they say it's written in stone? They mean it's permanent and it cannot be changed. And that's the reason why God wrote it in tables of stone. Now, friends, listen carefully. Even though this was the, uh, the first time God gave his law to Moses in written, in written form, we have to understand that God's law existed way before Mount Sinai. In fact, it's existed all the way back in the Garden of Eden. And, friends, the reason why is because God's law is a reflection of His nature and character. The Ten Commandments, the law of God, is a reflection of God's eternal character of love. It is a law of love, friends, a law of liberty and a law of love. Now, some of you might be scratching your heads and wondering, well, how do we know that God's law, the Ten Commandments, existed before it was written on Mount Sinai on tablets of stone? Very simply, friends, very simply. How do we know? Well, here's the question. Did sin exist before Mount Sinai? Yes or no? Of course. And I want you to notice what the Bible tells us concerning this. In Romans 4 verse 15, write it down. It says, where there is no law, there is no what? Transgression. So there, if there's no law, there's no transgression. What exactly is transgression? Here is the biblical definition of transgression. 1 John 3, 4, write it down. It says, whoever commits what? Sin transgresses the law. For sin is the what? Transgression of the law. Transgression means the breaking of the law. You see, friends, here's the clearest textbook definition of what sin is. Somebody asks you what sin? Here's the answer. It's the breaking of the law. But Paul says, if there is no law, then there's no sin. And that makes sense. If there's no law, then there's nothing to break. Isn't that right? And so here's the question. Did God's law exist before Mount Sinai? Yes or no? To answer that, you just have to ask, did sin exist before Mount Sinai? Yes or no? Yes. in the Garden of Eden, God said not to partake of their fruit. He said, if you do, you will surely die. Why? Friends, what brings death? Sin brings death. Bible says in the wages of sin is death, and sin is the breaking of the law. There was sin in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit. And if there was sin, that shows that there had to have first been a law to sin against. And in taking that fruit, they broke the Ten Commandments in principle. They stowed something that didn't belong to them. Isn't that right? Eve coveted the fruit, that which did not belong to her, she broke the Ten Commandment. They also broke the first commandment, they, they were not putting God as number one priority in their lives, they were listening to the lies of the serpent. They also broke the third commandment, they were taking God's name in vain because as children of God they were not acting like, they act, they're not being God-like. So in principle they broke the Ten Commandments when they partook of that forbidden fruit. And they passed these sinful tendencies down to their children, Cain and Abel. And let me tell you, let me ask you, friends, when Cain killed Abel, did Cain sin? Yes or no? And if he sinned, that shows that there had to have been a law to sin against. Because where there's no law, there is no sin, the Bible says. He broke the commandment that says, Thou shalt not kill. Not only that, we'll find other examples. Notice Genesis 26, verse 5 because that Abraham obeyed my voice, kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Was Abraham a commandment keeper according to this verse? Yes. Did he live before Moses and Mount Sinai? Yes, which shows that God's law existed before he wrote it down on tables of stone at Mount Sinai. God's 10 commandments, friends, is an eternal law, a reflection of his own character of love. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? This shows us something amazing, friends. That the Ten Commandments is not just for the Jewish nation like many people think. The law of God existed before a Jew ever existed way back in the Garden of Eden. It's not a Jewish thing. It's God's law. He wrote it with his own finger. Now, as we continue, I want you to notice in the Old Testament, God's law was the standard for right and wrong. But many people ask, well, what about the New Testament? Aren't we in a new dispensation? Is God's law still relevant for us living on this side of the cross? That's re- what really many people are wondering about. We know that it's, in the Old Testament, yes, the God's law was the standard, but what about in the New Testament? Did Jesus come to destroy or change the law of God? Well, let's find out. The Bible tells us in Matthew 5, verse 17 and 18. Please write it down. These are the words of Christ. Jesus said to the people, Think not that I am come to what? destroy the law of the prophets I am not come to destroy but to uh, fulfill Jesus said don't even think that I've come to destroy the law I'm not come to destroy it but to fulfill it and friends this word fulfill means to fill to the full it means to live it out or to establish it more fully and how did Christ fulfill the law by living it out in his own experience thus giving us an example of what it means to keep God's law, not legalistically like the Pharisees were, but to keep God's law based on love for God. Jesus came to establish it, not to destroy it. Some people think the word fulfill means to destroy, but if that's what it meant, the verse wouldn't make sense. I have not come to destroy, but to destroy? Would it make sense? To fulfill, again, in the original Greek language, means to fill to the full, to live it out, to establish more fully. That's what Jesus came to do. And then it says, For verily I say unto you, Till heaven and earth pass. Tell me, friends, is heaven and earth still exist today? Yes or no? Yes. And he said, One jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. A jot and a tittle, that's like the dotting of an I and the crossing of a T. He says that it would remain. And friends, notice another one. In, in excuse me, Isaiah twenty uh, excuse me, Isaiah forty two verse twenty one, we find a messianic prophecy concerning Jesus Christ when he came the first time, and notice what Christ would do at his first coming. It says the Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake, he will magnify the what, the law and make it what honorable. So one of the works of Christ when He came the first time was to magnify the law and honor the law. Friends, you can't destroy something and honor it at the same time. To honor something means to hold it in high esteem and to magnify something. What is the purpose of a magnifying glass? To make something clearer and larger. Isn't that right? So when Jesus came into this world, he lived out the principles of the law perfectly in his life, thus magnifying it to us, because when you look at Christ, you see what true obedience looks like. Not legalism, but obedience based off of love. And if that makes sense, would you please say, amen. Through his own life, Christ magnified the death depth of the law when he said, if you hate or are angry at your brother, you already murdered that person in your heart. He didn't come to change it or get rid of it, but rather magnifying, showing the depth of the Ten Commandments. But some people say, but you know, after Jesus kept the law in his life, then he destroyed it in his death. People think that Jesus came and the law was nailed to the cross, and because of his sacrifice, we no longer have to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, let's see if the Bible really teaches that notice why did Jesus come in the book of Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 it tells us you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from the law Oh, you have to correct me faster than that friends did Jesus come to save us from the law no friends well let's try it again you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people in their sins does Jesus save us in sin no friends, it says it save us, He saves us from sin and there's a huge difference. Jesus does not come to save us while we're still breaking the law and so that we can continue to break. No, He saves us from sin and sin is the breaking of the law. So friends, Jesus did not come to save us from the law. He came to save us from the breaking of the law, which is sin. Now, there was a law that did come to an end at the cross. And many people confuse this law with the Ten Commandments. I want to show you, friends, that there are different types of laws in the Bible. In Ephesians 2 verse 15, it tells us the nature of the law that came to an end at the cross. The Bible tells us, write it down, it says, Having abolished in His flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in what? Ordinances. So which commandment was abolished when Jesus came in the flesh? It was the one contained in ordinance. And another word for ordinance is ceremonies. It was the ceremonial law that was finished when Jesus died. And what did that law entail? Hebrews 9 verse 1 tells us, Then indeed even the first covenant had what? Ordinances of divine service and of the earthly sanctuary. So these ordinances that were finished at the cross was everything that was connected with that earthly sanctuary. In other words, the sacrificial services and the, and, and the, and the feasts and all of these ceremonies that took place in that earthly sanctuary, those were the laws that no longer t- need to be kept since Jesus died on the cross. And the reason why is because all of those ceremonies were simply shadowy types, compacted prophecies that would teach us about the mission of the Messiah at His first coming. And so when Jesus comes in the flesh, the shadow meets its substance in the Savior, and as a result, those laws are no longer necessary. But notice, friends, the Ten Commandments is a totally separate and distinctive law than that of the ceremonial law. Here's another one. Notice, Colossians 2 and verse 14. This verse is referring to the ceremonial law. Notice what it says. Blotting out the what? Handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us. Took it out of the way, nailing it to His cross. So which law was nailed to the cross according to the passage? It wasn't the Ten Commandments but rather it was the handwriting of ordinances, these sacrificial services, the ceremony laws. And again, the reason why they are nailed to the cross is because these things were to teach us about the death, the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true Messiah. And I want to show you this chart. You're going to receive this on a handout on your way out tonight so that you can have all the verses. But I want us to notice that there's a difference between the Ten Commandments, God's law, and the ceremony laws that were finished at the cross. God, the Ten Commandments is called God's law in Romans 8:7. Ceremonial law was called Moses' law in Hebrews 10:28. 10, Ten Commandments written by God's own finger. Ceremonial law was handwritten by Moses. Ten Commandments written on stone. Ceremonial law written in a book. Ten Commandments placed in the Ark of the Covenant. Ceremonial law was placed on the side of the Ark of the Covenant. There was a distinction in it. And don't worry if you can't write down all those scriptures fast. Once again, they're on the handout. Again, Ten Commandments are called, is called a spiritual law. Ceremonial law, carnal. Ten Commandments reveal sin. Ceremonial law was given because of sin. The Ten Commandments are eternal principles, whereas the ceremonial laws were temporal prophecies. Ten Commandments will stand forever. Ceremonial law was nailed to the cross. And we know that very clearly because the very moment Jesus died, He said, it is finished. And what happened? The veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, signifying the finishing of that earthly sanctuary and the sacrifices that took place therein. Jesus did not finish the Ten Commandments, but rather the ceremonial laws nailed to the cross. And, and because of that, we no longer have to go to a priest for intercession. We can just get on our knees and go... Directly by faith to our great high priest in heaven whoever lives to make intercession for us because of Jesus death We don't have to sacrifice a lamb or an animal to be saved All we have to do is pray and ask the Lord to cleanse us with his precious blood. Can you say amen? And so in Psalms 111 verse 7 and 8 write it down. It says all his commandments are sure They stand fast how long? forever and ever. And if that's clear, would you please say amen. Now, some people after uh, hearing that, they say, but but didn't Jesus say that all we need to do is love one another? Uh, Doesn't love get rid of the Ten Commandments, the 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 necessity of keeping the Ten Commandments? Didn't Jesus give us two new commandments? Well, friends, let's find out what that means. Jesus is speaking in Matthew 22, verse 37 through 40. The lawyer asked him, what, what is the great commandment in the law? Here's Jesus' response. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. Now, many people read that and they think that that was a new commandment somehow Jesus gave. But friends, that was nothing new. When Jesus said those words, he was quoting from the Old Testament from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. It was nothing new, friends. It was simply new to them because they forgot in the importance of loving God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus said and the second is like unto it thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself but that wasn't a new commandment when jesus said that he was quoting from leviticus 19 verse 18. from the very beginning god wanted us to love him and our neighbor it was nothing new and many people read that surfacely and they think that as long as i love god and love my neighbor i don't have to worry about the ten commandments well friends it will be well for us to read the rest of the verse can you say amen <laughs> because notice what the rest of the verse says the very next verse says on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets on these two commandments what two commandments love God and love your neighbor on these two principles of love it holds up the rest of the law of God Uh, let me give you an example of this how many hands do you have two hands and how many fingers do do those two hands hold up ten fingers right It's the same thing with God's commandments In order for you to hold up ten fingers, you first must have two hands. The point is that the only way you can keep the Ten Commandments is if you love God and love your neighbor because when you look at the law, it's broken up into two parts. The first part tells us how we love God, because if we truly love God, we will have no other, no other gods before Him, we will not worship idols, we will not take His name in vain, and we will remember the Sabbath. And if we truly love our neighbor as ourselves, we will honor our first neighbor, we will honor our father and mother, we will not kill our neighbor, we will not commit adultery, or lie, or steal, or covet our neighbor's goods. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. When you look at your hands, you have the Ten Commandments right there, amen? two principles of love. The point that Jesus is making is that the only way you can obey the Ten Commandments is if you first have love for God and love for each other. And if that makes sense would you please say amen. Amen. And that's why it's so important friends that when you study the Bible you don't just read a part of the verse and you don't just take one or two verses. But you read the whole verse, you read the context, you read the chapter before and after, and you read the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you get all the cooperating verses on that topic, and you put it together, and only as you do that does truth emerge very clearly before our mind. You see, when we're truly filled with love for God and love for our neighbor, it will fulfill the Ten Commandments. In Romans 13, 10, Paul said that love is the fulfilling of the law. Fulfilling doesn't mean doing away with. It means the establishing, the filling to its fullness of the law can only be done by love. If it's not done with love, then it's legalism and it's a bunch of filthy rags. But friends, when we truly love, love is the fulfilling of the law. Jesus said it like this in John 14, verse 15. He said, if you love me, what? Keep my commandments. You see, God's God's love and God's law are not diametrically opposed, friends, no. Jesus says that if you truly love me, keep my commandments. That's what he says implicitly or explicitly. But what is implicit in the verse is that if you don't love me, you will not keep my commandments. Because the only way we can keep God's commandments is by the power of love. We don't have the power to do it, friends. Our natures are so bent towards sin, it's impossible for us to do anything right. But love is the power that gives us victory over sin, which is breaking the law. Can you say amen? In other words, love for Jesus always leads to obedience to his law, which is a law of love. Let me give you another example. Remember the woman caught in adultery? Did she break God's law, yes or no? Yes, she was guilty of committing adultery. And the Pharisees said she should be stoned. And they were right because the wages of sin is death. And Jesus dealt with her accusers and and dealt kindly with this woman. But I want you to notice Jesus did not excuse her sin. He did not ignore her sin. He forgave her sin. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin some more. (laughs) Is that what Jesus said? Did Jesus say you can go and keep on sinning, it doesn't matter? No, he said, go and sin no more. That's the true gospel, friends. The gospel of Christ is not just pardon for our past, but it's power for our present to live a brand new life. You see, many people are just saying, neither do I condemn you. And they say, yes, God is a loving God and he's a merciful God and he doesn't condemn you and, and you can continue to live your life however you want to live in sin and you're going to still be saved. But friends, the same God that said, neither do I condemn you, said also, go and sin no more. Both of those two things together is the balanced true gospel of Christ. It looks like this. God pardons our past, but he also empowers our present. He gives us a life of victory. Can you say Amen. And yet there are many people who accuse the law as being a bunch of legalistic restrictions intended to keep us in bondage. But friends, notice when God spoke His law, He gave it in the context not of bondage, but in the context of freedom. Notice Exodus 20 verse 2. Before He spoke His Ten Commandments, God first said, I am the Lord thy God which brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of what? He's given His law in the context of freedom. I'm the one that set you free from slavery and bondage. I'm the one that did it, and now I'm giving you my 10 commandments to teach you how to remain out of bondage because His law is a law of liberty. Now, many people think it's legalism, but let me ask you a, a question. Why do we have stop signs and speed limits? Are those things there to restrict us or are they there to protect us? Now we might feel it's there, like it's there to restrict us when we're, when we're running late and we're just trying to get somewhere, but the purpose of stop signs and speed limits, the purpose of these laws are not to restrict, but to protect us, protect us from crazy accidents. Isn't that right? And so these things are, are reasonable, friends. It's given for our protection, so too the Ten Commandments. Not given to restrict us, but to protect us from the evil results of sin and the suffering that it brings. Now, let me ask you another question. Is it legalistic for me to expect my beloved wife to be faithful to me and not fool around with others? Is that a legalistic expectation or is that a reasonable expectation? It's reasonable for two reasons. Number one, because she made a promise or a vow to me, but more than that, it's because she loves me And because she loves me, it's reasonable for me to expect that she will be faithful to me in our marital vows. Isn't that right? So too with the law of God. It's reasonable when we love Him to keep His commandments. Here's another question. Is marriage bondage? Well, that depends on who you're married to. Isn't that right? (laughs) Some marriages are bondage, unfortunately. But listen, if both husband and wife love one another... It's not bondage, friends. It's absolute freedom to express a love that is pure and undefiled. You see, love makes the difference. If we keep God's commandments without love, yes, it's legalistic and it's a bunch of filthy rags of self-righteousness. But if we're doing it because we love the Lord, because He first loved us, it is not bondage. It is liberty. Can you say amen? And notice what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not grievous. You see, this is the love of God. When you say, I love God, what does that look like? It means that we're keeping His commandments which are a law of love. And it's not grievous, it's not a burden. Why? Because love makes the difference. And if that's clear, if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now next question, are we saved by keeping the law? Can we ever keep the law good enough to save ourselves? Absolutely not, friends. There's nothing we can do to save ourselves. The law does not save us. Well, then what is its purpose? What saves us? Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 tells us how a person is saved. Ephesians 2 8 and 9 says, For by grace are you saved through what? How are we saved? By faith in the grace of God, friends. And friends, grace is unmerited favor. Unmerited means you can't work for it. You can't do anything to earn it. You don't deserve it, friends. That's grace. G-R-A-C-E. Grace. Unmerited favor. That's how we're saved. Faith is the arm that grabs hold of God's grace. And then it says, And that not of yourselves, it is the what? Gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, if we could work our way to heaven, then we would have something to boast about. But we can't, friends. Salvation is a gift of God's grace, and a gift is something that you receive. It's not something that you try to earn or you work for. If I give you a gift, all you have to do is receive it, and that's how a person is saved. Can you say amen? Now, some people, though, are confused. They think that those who lived in the Old Testament are going to be saved by keeping the law, and that those who live in the New Testament are saved by grace. Well, friends, is there two methods of salvation? No, friends. The only way we're gonna be saved, if we live in the Old Testament or the New, is by God's grace. The Bible tells us that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. There's only one way to be saved, friends, and that is through Jesus Christ. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and so everyone on both sides of the cross are going to be in heaven only because of the grace of God. You see, that's where we meet. All of the human race meet at the foot of the cross. And I'm so thankful that the ground is level at the foot of Calvary. Can you say amen? Amen. And there's room enough for all of us at the foot of the cross. And so here's the next question that perhaps you're asking. Well, then what is the difference between those who lived in the Old Testament and those who live in the New Testament? Here's the essential difference. Those who lived in Old Testament times look forward by faith in the coming Messiah. And their sacrifices were an expression of their faith in the true Lamb of God that would soon to come. Those who live in the New Testament look backwards by faith at the cross of Jesus Christ. And so we all meet right there at the foot of the cross. Everyone that's going to be saved will be saved only by the grace of God. If that's clear, would you please say amen? So the next question is this. Well, then why, does, why do we need to keep the law if we're saved by grace? Why do we need to keep the law if we're saved by grace? If the law doesn't save us, why do we need to keep it? Well, friends, let me answer that question with a question. How many of you like mangoes? Some of you may not like mangoes because you didn't try the the mangoes we have in Hawaii. But if you try those Hawaiian mangoes, oh, you're going to like mangoes. I love mangoes. Growing up in Hawaii, oh, man, mangoes are so, so good. Here's the question. Why does a mango tree grow mangoes? Why does a mango tree grow mangoes? Does a mango tree grow mangoes to prove that it's a mango tree? Does a mango tree grow mangoes to earn the right to be called a mango tree? No, of course not. Well, then why does a mango tree grow mangoes? Well, here's the answer, friends. It's profound. Here's the answer. A mango tree grows mangoes because it is a mango tree. (laughs) That was pretty profound, wasn't it? Well, here's the point, friends. Listen carefully. A Christian does not keep the law to prove that they're a Christian. A Christian keeps the law because they are a Christian. That's what Christians do because that's what Jesus did. A Christian does not keep the law to... (laughs) Listen, friends, listen. A Christian doesn't keep the law to earn salvation. A Christian keeps the law because they have already, already received the free gift of salvation. And the results of receiving the gift of salvation is that they were going to bear the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, the fruit shows what the roots are like. The root of salvation is faith in God's grace. The fruit of obedience shows us that the root of our faith is firmly grounded in the love and the grace of God. In other words, obedience is simply the results of already receiving the gift of salvation. That's why we keep the law. It's a natural result. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Amen. This is the new covenant, friends. Many people say, oh, I'm a new covenant Christian. I don't keep the Ten Commandments. They think that the new covenant gets rid of the Ten Commandments, but it doesn't. Notice what the new covenant does. In Hebrews chapter 8 verse 10, for this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, said the Lord, that I will put my laws into their mind and I will write them in their hearts and I'll be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. The new covenant doesn't get rid of the law, but it puts the law in the proper place in our hearts and in our minds. God wants to write it there so that we do not forget it. I delight to do your, your will, oh my God, Yea, your law is within my heart. And by the way, friends, this is not a new type of covenant or a a new type of salvation. You see, when the writer of Hebrews wrote these words, they were quoting from the Old Testament in Jeremiah 31, 31 31-34. God always wanted to write his law in the hearts and minds of his people. So this is not so much a new type of covenant, but rather it's a new chance to let God do what he always wanted to do from the very beginning of time. It was another opportunity to let God write His law in our hearts and minds. In other words, the New Covenant doesn't do away with God's law. It simply puts it in the proper place. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Listen carefully, friends. There's a false teaching called, or a counterfeit uh, teaching called dispensationalism that is being taught in the Christian world. A dispensationalism that leads to antinomianism. They say that, that, that we're in a new dispensation, and because of this, we don't have to keep the law. Now, friends, there are different dispensations, but any dispensation that leads to antinomianism is a deception, friends. It's not found in the Bible. Now, other people say, but, you know, we're not under the law. We're under grace. And many people think that God's grace is a license to no longer keep God's law. But what does it mean, friends? Does grace do away with God's law? is god's grace opposed to god's law well let's find out shall we in romans 6 verse 14 the bible says for sin shall not have dominion over you for what does that word for mean what is another word for Uh, what is another word for for (laughs) because right it says for sin shall not have dominion over you for you are not under the law but under grace Many people have read this verse surfacely, and they have assumed that that means that because we're under grace, we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. But is that what Paul is saying? Does grace get rid of the law? Absolutely not. You know why? Because notice the very next verse, it says this, what then? Shall we sin? What is the definition of sin? The breaking of the law. Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? What's the answer? God forbid. In no way is this what I'm saying, Paul says. Shall we sin? Shall we break the law because we're not under the law, but under grace? The answer is no. God forbid. Well, then what does Paul mean when he says we're not under the law, but we're under grace? Listen carefully, friends. Don't miss this. The first part of the verse explains what the second part of the verse means because of the word for. The word for means because it gives the reason. So here's, we're going to break it down very simply. Either we're under law or under grace. Paul said to the Christians who believe in Christ, we're not under the law, we are under grace. Now friends, listen. If we are under grace, that means that sin shall not have dominion over you. Is that true, yes or no? Yes, it's right there. If we are truly under grace, that means sin shall not have dominion over you. And think about it. If sin, which is the breaking of the law, doesn't have dominion or power or authority over you, then that must mean it's because you have power over sin. And if you have power over sin, that means that you are overcoming sin. And if you're overcoming sin, that must mean that you're not breaking the law because sin is the breaking of the law. And if you are not breaking the law, that must mean it's because you are keeping the law. And if you're keeping the law, it's because you are not under the law but under grace. That's what it means, friends. Don't just try to interpret it yourself. Let the Bible speak for itself, amen? The Bible is clear. And so here it is in plain language. What does it mean? being under the law means that you're breaking the law because you are under sin's dominion and condemnation. That's what it means to be under the law. It means you're breaking it because you're under its power and condemnation. To be under grace is the opposite. It means that sin doesn't have dominion over you. Why? Because you're keeping the law through the power of of grace and here's the reason friends grace is not only a forgiveness word grace is an empowering word it gives us power to obey how do we know because the Bible tells us so write it down Romans 1 verse 5 says through him we have received what grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith see friends grace gives us power to obey to obey the law of love and if that makes sense if that's clear would you please say amen Amen. grace always leads to obedience friends never 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 to disobedience but some people say all you have to do is believe don't worry about the works and keeping the law just just believe with all your heart and confess with your lips and it's true friends all we need to do is believe but what does it really mean to believe and have faith you see Paul knew that some people would try to cheapen faith to the level of a license to disobey. And that's the reason why he wrote in Romans 3.31, do we then make void the law through faith? Do you understand the question? Just because we have faith, does that mean we can make void the law? Does that mean we can just go ahead and break the law just because we have faith? What's the answer? God forbid. Yea, we will what? Establish the law. In other words, if we truly have faith, the law is going to be established in our lives and that's what the word fulfill means it means to establish more fully In other words, faith enables us to obey the law of God because we have faith in God's grace which is the power of his love that compels us to obey him because we love him and how do we know because James 2 26 tells us that faith without works is what is dead so true living faith that's not dead it works living faith works we want to have a faith that's not dead, but a faith that, that is alive. And true living faith will work. Well, how does it work? What keeps it alive? In Galatians 5:6, faith that works by what? Love. Love is what makes all the difference. Love is the life-giving power of God that brings life to our faith that results in the works of obedience. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now, the next question, what is the role of God's law? We know that it doesn't save us. It can never save us. Well, what is the role or the purpose of the law then? Here's the answer. In Romans 3 verse 20, Therefore by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of what? So the law cannot justify us or make us right. The purpose of the law is the knowledge of sin. In other words, the law reveals to us what sin is. Write down James chapter 1 verse 22 to 24. In this passage... It tells us that God's law is likened unto a mirror. It's likened unto a what? It's like a mirror, and what is the purpose of a mirror? There's only one thing the mirror does, friends. The mirror shows us reality. We may not like reality when we look in the mirror, but the mirror doesn't lie. The mirror always tells the truth, amen? The mirror tells you that your hair is crazy and there's stuff stuck in your teeth and, and you look like a mess. You may not like it, but if you did get rid of that mirror, you still look the same. God's law is like a mirror, it shows us what sin is. And so, to illustrate this, I need you to excuse me just for a moment while I come back here where no one is looking to break the law of God. And so, you need to be praying for me. I'm back here where no one can see me, and I'm breaking God's law. I'm sinning against the Lord. Oh, have mercy upon the preacher. Don't gossip, friends, just pray. Are you praying? Are you sure? don't judge me pray for me now that I'm done breaking the law of God I'm going to come out here and finish the sermon and and we can go home tonight why are you laughing for what's wrong is there something wrong it's nothing wrong it's all good friends I got something on my face do I look presentable yes or no no well you don't look so good yourself who are you to judge me But tell me, is there something wrong with me? Well, how do I know I can trust you? What do I really need to know my my true condition? What do I I need right now to really see who I am? I need a mirror. God's law is like a mirror. What is the purpose of the law? To show us what sin is. And so I take the law of God. My wife, you know, got me this mirror. And, And I look into the law of God, and the law shows me that I'm dirty. The law shows me that I have sin in my life. The law shows me that my life is not in harmony with God and I see my condition, oh, I'm so. Oh, my life is not good. So what do I do? If I break the mirror, is that gonna change my condition, yes or no? Getting rid of the law is not gonna change me, friends. It's not gonna help me at all. Well, what do I do then? Do I take the law and try to clean myself with it? Does the law clean me? The law can't clean me, friends. So what is the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law is to show me my need of cleansing. And so now that I see my need of cleansing, what do I do? I, 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 I'm not done yet. What do I do? Th- that <laughs> I, I see my need to be cleansed, so I place the law of God aside reverently, and then I go to the one that can cleanse me. I go to the blood of Jesus, and I say, Lord, would you please forgive me for my sins, dear God? I've messed up. I've made a fool of myself. I've done things I'm ashamed of. I've broken your holy law. Please have mercy upon me. And friends, what the law could not do, the blood of Jesus is able to do. Amen? Amen. But friends, listen. I would not have seen my need for the blood unless I first looked into the holy law of God. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Christ is the best detergent to cleanse every stain upon the garment of our lives. How do I look now? Am I good? What? I still, I messed up? What, do I at least look better, better than I used to? Am I improving? Well, I I can't tell, so I go back to the law, and that law says, oh, you're doing better, Taj. You're doing better, but there's still some things in your life. And so I say, oh, Lord, not just the big things, but the small things, too. Lord, cleanse me from that pride and that selfishness. Oh, Lord, not just the the outward obvious things, but even the, the inward selfish motivations of my life. And friends, the blood of Christ cleanses us thoroughly from the big things and the small things, too. Am I all right now? I don't know if I'm all right until I go again back to that law. And that law that once told me I was dirty and lost and sinful, that law tells me that my life is in harmony with God and, and, and I'm cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of the law. It doesn't cleanse us. It simply shows our need for the cleansing blood of Jesus. Can you say amen? Amen. <clears throat> now, I, I'm not done yet. I need seven volunteers, seven volunteers to come up uh, uh, right up here very quickly. Seven volunteers, seven volunteers. Please don't all jump up at once now. All right, I have one, two, three. I need four, four five. I need six. Okay, one of you guys can come quickly, quickly, quickly. Are you going to stand right here in a line facing everyone? All right, all right, all right, my brother. My brother, if you stand right here, right, right between these two ladies. Okay, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. My brother, you're gonna go all the way to the end. Actually, you're gonna, you're gonna stand right here between these two ladies. My brother, my brother, right, right here, right here, sorry. Okay, we have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I'm gonna give them new names, and I got some signs here to help us out. Here are their new names, and I need you to help me with this. You can kind of spread out a little bit so that people can see it. All right okay we have the law let's start from this side this sister her new name is the church what is her name because in prophecy the church is likened unto a woman so when i point to her you're going to say her name which is the and my brother here is the preacher he's a preacher of god and so he's the preacher and, and my sister here is what's her name gospel she's the good news of christ and then my brother here is jesus and my sister here is grace and my brother here is i'm sorry my brother sin oh no and my brother here is the law and so here's my volunteers thank you so much for being here and when I point to you you folks out there you're the people you're the what so when I point to you you're going to say the okay let's try this together the come on a little louder the go to come on now go to to hear the preach the of and about his which is pardon for which is breaking the Very good, but here's the thing. People are saying that God's has been done away with, that the is bondage, and that the was nailed to the cross, that grace gives us license to break the, so we don't need the, get rid of the, so law, you can have a seat, thank you very much. Let's give him a hand, let's give him a hand. Notice what happens when we get rid of the law of God Notice what happens when churches teach that we don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. Here's what happened friends. Are, are you ready the? Go to to hear the preach the of and about is which is pardoned for which is breaking the What law? There is no law. We nailed it to the cross. We got rid of that law. Do you remember? And friends what happens is this where there is no law there is no because is the breaking of the law but if there is no law to break then there's no such thing as does that make sense and so sin can have a seat god bless you my friend let's give him a hand now what ready the go to to hear the preach the of and about his which is part in four there's no sin and friends if there is no sin there's no need of why because is what part in sin but if I'm not a sinner I don't have any need of grace you see friends listen angels do not need grace the holy angels that is because they've never sinned before grace is only for sinners but if I don't see that I'm a sinner that I've broken God's law, then I'm not going to see my need of grace. So no sin, no need of. So grace can have a seat. God bless you. Let's give her a hand. What happens next is this: The go to, to hear the, preach the of and about his. No grace. no Jesus that's a tragedy friends you see here's here's the thing think with me if there is an absence of grace the only logical explanation is that it's because there's an absence of jesus because jesus is the source of grace isn't that right so if there's no grace the only logical explanation is that there is no and i can't imagine life without jesus no grace no jesus Jesus can have a seat God bless you now what the go-to to hear the preach the of no Jesus no good news only bad news without Jesus friends if there is no Jesus there's nothing good no good news no gospel nothing to preach no Jesus No gospel. Gospel can have a seat. Let's give her a hand. The go to to hear the preach about nothing. (laughs) And friends, that's a sad reality that people are going to church listening to preachers who have no substance in the sermon. They get up, read one or two verses, tell nice fluffy flowery feel-good stories making people laugh and entertaining the people and saying it's going to be all right but there's no substance behind the pulpit why because they've gotten rid of the the, the law and the the true gospel and and friends if there's no nothing to preach about then we don't really need a preacher if the preacher is not preaching the word and the true gospel I don't want to listen to that preacher do you so we don't need the preacher anymore so preacher you're fired (laughs) god bless you my brother I know you never preach that what happens now the people go to 4 let's give her a hand do you understand do you understand What happens? The danger of saying that we don't need to keep the commandments. Many churches are teaching that, friends. It's the spirit of the antichrist, antinomianism doctrine that is sitting in the temple of God. Many Christian churches today. When you get rid of the law, you can't see your sinful condition. If you don't see your sin, you don't see your need of the grace and the mercy. and, And you go down the line, why are we even here to begin with? We're wasting our time, friends the fact that the law of God is an eternal law that shows us our sins, that shows us our need of Jesus, we are in the right place tonight. Can you say amen? As we close tonight, just a few more verses. The Bible tells us in 1 John 2 verse 4, it says, he that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. If a person says, oh, I know God, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, I went to school, and you need to listen to me, I got the degrees. Listen, we don't have to keep the law. What does the Bible say about that person? That person is lying, and the truth is not in him. And friends, I don't want to listen to a liar. Amen? Those who say, I know him, Jesus is going to say, I don't know you. Depart from me, you who work iniquity and practice lawlessness. But in contrast to liars there's going to be a group of people at the end that will tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And notice their description in Revelation 14 verse 12. Here's God's end time people, the saints, the spiritual Israelites of the last day. It says, here's the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, God's people in the last days, they not only have faith, they not only have works, but they have faith that works because they love the Lord Jesus. And when those saints go marching into the kingdom, I want to be a part of that number. How about you? And then notice, friends, the last book of the Bible and the last chapter of that book far into the New Testament. You can't get farther than this. In Revelation 22, verse... Fourteen. it describes a people keeping God's commandments far after the resurrection into into the New Testament. It says, blessed are they that do His commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates into the city of God. Here's a group of people that don't make grace a license to sin. They've experienced the reality of the new covenant promise. They delight to do God's will because His law is in their hearts. And they realize more than anyone else that God's law is a law of love and a law of liberty and a law that brings peace and harmony between God and man. Oh, friends, as we close tonight, I would just like to share, we don't have time for that story, but I want to invite Sister Hope to come up. She's gonna sing a song as we close. And I want you to consider that God's grace is called amazing. But grace becomes disgrace when we make it a license to sin. Grace is free for us, but it cost Jesus everything to make it available to us. He had to go to the cross, friends. It's expensive. G-R-A-C-E is an acronym. It stands for God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. It was grace that taught my heart to fear fear God they keep his commandments and grace my fears relieved that grace pardons the past but it frees us in the present not free to sin but free from sin tonight I invite you to bow your heads and close your eyes listen to the words of this song and then we'll pray and dismiss how many of you are thankful for the grace of God But it's not a cheap grace, amen. It's not a greasy grace. It's an expensive grace. A grace that is given by the ultimate sacrifice of God on the cross. A grace that not only pardons our past, but empowers our present to give us a brand new life a life of victory, a life of loving obedience. How many of you want more of God's pardoning and empowering grace in your life tonight? If that's your prayer, please pray with me as we close. Dear Lord, thank you so much for making this message clear tonight. It's a foundational message. We see through prophecy how Satan through the Antichrist kingdom is creeping within the church, sitting in the temple of God, bringing his antinomianism spirit. We thank you, Lord, that we need not be led astray and deceived by those lies. We thank you for the truth that your law is a law of love, a law of liberty, a law that not restricts us but protects us from the evil results of sin. And Lord, we pray that you'd write that holy law in our hearts and minds. May we experience the reality of that new covenant promise. You will be our God and we will be your people. Those who delight to do your will, not just profess your name but possess your spirit. Do your will in our hearts. Give us that that, that experience, dear Lord. Forgive us for our sins and give us power, Lord, to live a new life in Jesus Christ. This is our prayer and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Amen.